My name is Kevin Fallis. I am a Senior Specialist Solutions Architect, and I work with the Amazon Elasticsearch service to help customers visualize and work out their solutions with the Amazon Elasticsearch service. So today we'll be talking about simplifying and modernizing home search at Compass with Amazon Elasticsearch. Joseph Sarash, the CTO of Compass, will be joining me here a little bit later on to talk about how his company leverages our service to achieve their business goals and to provide value to their customers. So as our agenda today, I'm going to start off and I'm going to talk about the Amazon Elasticsearch service, the benefits it provides, some of the features that are involved with the service and how it integrates with many open source frameworks and AWS services. Then Joseph's going to join me and discuss what Compass provides as a service for its customers using our service. Then Joseph's going to deep dive on an architecture that he's worked out with his company and the items that power Compass Real Estate Search. So let's discuss a little bit about the Amazon Elasticsearch service. So Amazon Elasticsearch is a fully managed service that allows you to deploy, secure, manage, and scale your cluster of Elasticsearch for log analytics and many other use cases such as search. Amazon Elasticsearch has open source roots. So what the service team does is they deploy a, a Elasticsearch cluster in a VPC and they provide that to you. And the Elasticsearch source code is drawn from the open source eco ecosystem, the Apache 2.0 based source code. And additionally, Kibana is integrated with that, and so we provide that open source framework through a series of endpoints with the Amazon Elasticsearch service so that you can access that same open source technology to integrate with your products and your solutions. Additionally, the service integrates with popular ingest frameworks. So when you look at a log delivery pipeline, effectively you need to get data into your service. So the way we look at things at Amazon Web Services is that you have four different tiers for delivering data to the Amazon Elasticsearch service. So first of all, you collect data. And what this means is you might have IoT devices. You might have EC2 instances, containers, or a broad range of sources that generate data. And then what you have to do is you leverage something called a collector to then take that data and ship it to a buffer. So there are many buffers out there, both open source and ones offered by Amazon Web Services, such as Amazon Kinesis Data Firehose and Amazon Kinesis Data Streams. You can also use things like Kafka and other open source solutions to accomplish those same buffering goals. And the intent behind a buffer when you use the Amazon Elasticsearch service or even Elasticsearch if you're self-managing it is to be able to provide a steady stream of data and manage a consistent flow into your cluster to maintain stability. Um, many customers without having a buffer will find that you will eventually overwhelm your Amazon Elasticsearch cluster or even your self-managed Elasticsearch cluster. So having that buffer in there allows you to achieve a lot of your stability goals. Then at the third tier, we talk about aggregation. So we've talked about the ingest or the collecting. We've talked about the buffering. Now we talk about the aggregation. And what I mean by aggregation is not, you know, uh, you're running a SQL query and you're doing a join and you're you know, doing bucketing and bringing data back. The idea here is that there's a bulk API on the Amazon Elasticsearch service. 
And what it allows you to do then is to group a bunch of data records together, ship those into the service, and you can achieve high throughput rates in delivering your data so you can achieve your visualizations and your business goals. Then finally, you have the storing process, which is the Amazon Elasticsearch service. All these complete solutions, whether it be open sourced or whether it be managed by the Amazon Elasticsearch service, or, and even by Amazon Web Services, provide you a very diverse ecosystem by which you can integrate a multitude of technologies to help your company achieve the things that you want to build. So as I mentioned a little bit earlier, Kibana is exposed to you with the Amazon Elasticsearch service. So we provide two endpoints. First endpoint is directly accessing the Elasticsearch cluster. And the way we achieve this is we put a load balancer out there for you. And there's data nodes that comprise an Elasticsearch cluster which hold your data and achieve uh, the function of being the delivery mechanism or the response request cycle mechanism. So you post this data or you write this data to the load balancer. It's distributed to the data nodes. And then that information then is provided back to you. So by using Kibana then, I then access that second endpoint and that will integrate and talk to the data nodes and run the queries. So Kibana, very, very rich visualization. I'm able to go ahead and build dashboards, visualizations, and very different things such as heat maps, uh, bar charts, graphs, and other visualizations that can allow me, build, to allow me to build a rich set of tools that I can see what's going on in my environment if I have a log analytics use case. Now, search use cases, quite different. You're building your own custom applications, and Joseph will talk about this here in a bit, how Compass has actually leveraged you know, the endpoint for Elasticsearch to achieve those goals. So why do customers choose Amazon Elasticsearch service? First of all, it's fully managed. For many of you that might have run your own clusters, and can I get a show of hands? How many people run their own clusters right now or self-manage? All right. So um, you know, many customers do this, and they operate many clusters at scale. And when you start getting into the business of trying to find where you can operation, uh, maintain some operational efficiency or increase your operational efficiency, you look at how I can take different individuals and maybe provide managed services to do what their role was and then allow you to then take those resources to work on other projects that can help differentiate your business from other, customer, from other companies. And so having a fully managed cluster, it basically means you don't need an operational staff to watch the cluster. The Amazon Elasticsearch service team provides those individuals to do that. Using the APIs, CLIs, CloudFormation templates, and things like that, you can deploy production-ready clusters in minutes. Full end-to-end -end suite, complete with DNS, with load balance on the front, security wrapping the entire deployment, and gives you the ability to basically have an equivalent of what you may run on-prem yourself and current, so currently self-manage. Well, the second reason is you have access to all your data. So when you bring data into the Amazon Elasticsearch service or even into Elasticsearch itself, you'll find that you know, you're going to store it in an index or a multitude of indexes, and then your visualiza visualization technology then gets to read that same data. And so you have a nice um, you know, working platform that provides visualizations, the ability to write code, and even you know, do queries from developer tools that are, is a Kibana plugin, and basically achieve you know, a one-stop shop for your analytics needs and even your search um, needs. Uh, next reason is scalability. So if you ever had uh, self-manage your own clusters, 
you have to worry about patching, you have to worry about version upgrades, and a lot of other things. And so um, when you do that, you know, you also sometimes have to worry about, you know, additional things such as I have load coming in. I need to scale my cluster up. So with the service, we provide you the ability to go ahead and size up vertically so I can choose different instance families. Anywhere from the C5 series, M5 series, R5 series. Uh, these are EC, Amazon EC2 instances that basically provide different characteristics such as compute, storage, or CPU. And so wrapping all this up, I can scale both horizontally, horizontally and also vertically if I need to get more JVM, more CPU, or more memory. So uh, uh, another big thing is that the Amazon Elasticsearch service is very secure. And so what we try and do is provide a broad range of tools to allow you to achieve your security goals. And so starting off with when the service is deployed, we give you a service managed VPC. And basically, we cut off all access. And we have a deny-only policy until you open that up. So what you then leverage is security groups to open up access to the cluster if you're managing it in VPC or you use what's called an IEM policy on the edge to go ahead and allow access to your indexes and to the things that you only want certain business functions to access. Additionally, encryption at rest, and encryption at transit, and enforcement of HTTPS or secure HTTP on the edge of your cluster itself. And this allows, as a complete package, the ability for you to go ahead and secure your data and ensure that it isn't going to get compromised. Next is the service is highly available. So recently, probably about uh, five or six months ago, we announced uh, the ability to use three AZs. Now, what that allowed us to accomplish was that now we could deploy master nodes, which are the controlling mechanism for the state of your cluster and where indexes live. So we deploy those master nodes across three AZs now. And with three AZs, I can suffer a failure. And then once things recover, I, you know, I can bring my, my cl a cluster back to a, a fully deployed state, but during that time, I have additional masters to take over the load. And I also have additional data nodes to take over the load, as, as long as I've configured things properly. And so I then get the availability zones to give me high availability, so I can you know, encounter a, fail in a, a failure in availability zone, and traffic can be automatically shifted to the surviving nodes to continue my business. Finally, there's tight integration with other services. Uh, so, you know, some of the integrations that are out there is when you deploy our service, you'll receive uh, a, a, the ability to use Amazon CloudWatch to go ahead and view the details of your cluster. So we provide a multitude of metrics from JVM utilization, CPU utilization, memory, disk I.O., and a bunch of other metrics that will allow you to monitor that cluster. And that integration is directly done with uh, Amazon CloudWatch. Additionally, from a security perspective, when you affect the APIs for the management of the service, uh, we will leverage CloudTrail to allow you to track who's done what to those resources on your cluster. Additionally, being able to have direct integration with Amazon Kinesis Data Firehose, and also with CloudWatch logs with a direct integration with a button click and an IAM policy, I can deliver logs to my Amazon Elasticsearch service with very, very little configuration. Finally, you can also bring in SQL database sources uh, using the database management service. And so there is now an integration that allows you to connect to these you know, different relational databases and bring that data in to the Elasticsearch service so you can index and query and do the nice search things that you know, regular indexes on a databases are very, very hard to achieve. 
All right, there's a few other things uh, that I'll wrap up here and I'll turn it over to Joe. Um, the first thing, when you also manage our service, there are a lot of things that are included. Um, things that people don't normally think about. I think the biggest one is when you start doing comparison of, you know, is it going to be more cost effective or total cost of ownership is what we call it. Am I going to be more effective managing myself or, you know, by using Amazon's resources to manage it, why achieve, you know, a better, you know, success rate or a better operational excellence. So the service provides the IT labor. So, you know, around the globe, you know, monitoring of your cluster, 24 by 7, 365 resources. There's a robust support ecosystem that basically allows us to manage hundreds, if not thousands or 10,000s of clusters globally and do so with efficiency. And so many customers find this hard to achieve that level of excellence, and they do leverage our service for that very, very purpose. Uh, the next thing is, is that from a server perspective, when you're managing and doing migrations to different versions, typically you stand at what's called a blue-green environment. A blue-green environment basically means that I have my active cluster, which is green, and I have my blue cluster that's ready to be promoted to the green or the active cluster. We'll stand it up. We'll copy the shards from the existing domain after we join the other cluster to the regular domain. We slide things over, and basically what you have is zero downtime during this activity. But you don't have to pay for the servers and the additional compute that we stand up and do the blue-green deployment on. If you're doing it yourself, you would be the person or the people that would be standing up those additional clusters and you would have to pay for those. So this is another benefit customers find. Uh, from a network perspective, DNS is provided on the edge, so we give you a couple endpoints based on Route 53. You don't pay for those charges. DNS charges or anything that's associated with that uh, portion of providing that service you know, in the form of DNS traffic. Additionally, there's interzone inter AZ transfer charges if you're self-managing that you also have to concern yourself with. And these are also covered by the service. Finally, zero licensing costs. Very, very beneficial for many, many customers. Um, if you've been paying attention to what's going on in uh, the ecosystem, recently we announced a partnership to work with uh, a project called Open Distro for Elasticsearch. Basically, open source everything, Apache 2.0 license. And then you see, you know, in the progression of time that we've been slowly bringing in certain plugins, such as the um, alerting plugin, and also a SQL plugin that allows you to query your data um, using a SQL-like language. And so this is provided to you with zero licensing costs, and this is a very, very attractive thing for many customers. So without further ado, I want to introduce Joseph Srash. He's a CTO of Compass. And so he's leading the first end-to-end -end platform for real estate. They're really, they're really innovating here. They have applications and things that allow the real estate function to execute with efficiency. So Joseph spent some time prior to the, the job with Compass at Microsoft. He was a corporate VP and CTO for AI. And this was from 2013 to 2018. Prior to that, he actually worked at Amazon. And so he was a tech VP and a key leader for machine learning from 2004 to 2013. Um, and he started off his roots, he, he gained a PhD in neural networks from UT Austin. So everybody, let's welcome Joseph Sarosh, the CTO of Compass. Thanks, Kevin. Good morning. So when I explain Compass and our uh, technology vision, 
I say real estate is software. So people wonder what I mean when I say real estate is software. And so then I say music is software. Makes sense, right? You know, 50 years ago, music was analog. We played guitars. We recorded on analog microphones. We captured it on vinyl records. You know, you went to Tower Records, bought those, put it on a turntable, and played music. That was how music was played 50 years ago. But now, 50 years later, everything about the mu music industry, from the creation of music to how it's curated and processed, how it's distributed, how you find it on long-tail marketplaces, how the search itself is ranked using AI, how you personalize it, how you create your playlist, how you enjoy it in your app. Everything has become so driven by software and AI that when I say music is software, it makes sense to everyone. My five-year-old probably thinks music is a feature of an app. It's almost not human. Well, now I can say transportation is software. And it starts to make sense. Uber and Lyft and Tesla software on wheels. And that's the experience that is constantly improving, right? And Waymo and so on. It's about the experience created by software and AI and data that's become the most differentiating and most valuable commodity. Everything else becomes just commoditized. Real estate is going to go the same way. Experiences around real estate, starting with the transaction, of real estate, everything around it is going to get digitized and covered by software and AI and personalization mechanisms. That's the journey we are on. For us, our starting point is the real estate transaction itself. <clears throat> Why? Because that's where the house actually gets digitized. The digital representation of the home is the listing that is created by an agent when that agent prepares a house for sale. The pictures, the descriptions, of course, all the associated information about the neighborhood, public records, you know, tax, price, schools, everything. Well, so if you can start from that, we can then hope to digitize experiences around real estate and create an incredible platform transformation. So as a company, we have a big mission. Our mission is to help everyone find their place in the world. We build technology for our agents to help people find the, their place in the world. Our company has grown incredibly rapidly. It was founded in 2012 in 24 plus markets already, 2 billion plus in sales in the last seven years. You know, it grew extremely rapidly, annual sales. 2,300 employees, 15,000 agents. Um, I joined Compass about a year ago in December, and since then we have very rapidly grown the engineering team to well over 400. So let me explain some of the things that we do at Compass and then how Elasticsearch plays into it. So uh, obviously, search is foundational. You create listings, you now create map-based search experiences. Behind that is uh, an Elasticsearch cluster. So this is an example of the consumer search experience you'll find on the web or on an app. Well, now we've got to create great search experiences for our agents as well. See, we are a three-sided marketplace. There are agents, buyers, and sellers active on the same platform. Now, agents have unique requirements. Agents um, really search with extremely fine level of granularity. 
you know, each region has lots of hyperlocal differences. Um, real estate in Las Vegas is not the same as real estate in Manhattan. It's not the same as real estate in Miami or Denver or in El Paso. It is very different, and there are rules and regulations that vary by all these regions. Um, in fact, there are over 800 multiple listing systems across the country. Multiple listing systems are where agents join up to pool their listings data in a particular region, and they have just a database that all of them can search so they can help each other out. And those multiple listing systems vary in the data schemas, the type of data that's populated, the experiences. And we pull data from those multiple listing systems and aggregate. And so we've got to support a very large number of features and filter panels and search experiences that uh, agents find useful. So here are examples of search filters. Um, and um, we have provided experience both on web and mobile. Here, let me talk through a summary slide. So the search object, the object you're searching for, is a listing document. That's what goes into Elasticsearch. On the right is a very typical search, uh, a condo in Upper East Side, New York, uh, uh, asking price less than a million and a half, with two bedrooms, one bath, less than 30 days on the market, built after 1970. An example of a, in fact, it's not an all too complex search, it's a typical search that uh, one might actually set up. Well, so in the middle, is the search system. So it collects data from very different sources, MLSs, in some cases, building data sources, uh, new developments, various types. You index it for geographical search. You also index attributes of various types, like beds, baths, and addresses. And there are many other search fields which vary by region, by MLS, by regulation, uh, by listing type, etc. And then you render the search experience. So this is the Elasticsearch usage in numbers. We have about 120 million listings, 140 million sale records. Uh, this is not big, big data, but it's medium-sized data. 100 million searches a day, one and a half uh, or 1,500 attributes. So we started this journey with Lucene. So I want to tell you what our starting point was before we migrated to Elasticsearch. Uh, in 2017, we had built this system. We had data coming from multiple MLSs. It was being brought together in an ETL process. We had a listing database, a document database, and the, that's where all the normalized uh, uh, descriptions of the listings were kept. Now, indexer workers uh, just kept running against the document database, pulled the data, then uh, created indexes in Lucene, there were Lucene shards, sharded Lucene, against which all the search queries came. So a search query would come over a REST API service, which hit the right shard, and you would serve the result up. Anybody see a problem with this architecture? Lots of bottlenecks in the system. First of all, the ETL process itself is going to be really slow. There's lots of prone issues. And we can fully solve for that. I mean, uh, MLSS restrictions always uh, cause problems sometimes. Well, but there's this listing database into which you are normalizing everything. Everything is put into one single database. And indexer workers are pulling off of this database, and they are limited by the IOPS of the database. So the database is a single point of failure and a bottleneck. And then there are all these shards, uh, Lucene shards. How do you maintain them? How do you actually shard them? How do you update them as we grow so fast? 
all of these were pain points. So we had to create, these are all the pain points and tremendous amount of undifferentiated heavy lifting, right? This, this does not add value to the customer. This is not the work that our engineers should be doing. Instead, they should be innovating on features for the customers. So we had to create clusters manually. That was painful. <clears throat> we had to keep forecasting our growth. We had to have disk forecast for every shard. And very often, we actually got it wrong. And sometimes we would have outages because of that. Recovering from that outage was a pain of its own. Um, the sharding itself, you had to do it manually, right? And uh, certain geographies might grow much faster than others. And managing all of the sharding wasn't easy. And then Lucene itself needed tuning. And you had to have somebody who was actually really specialized to know how to tune the cluster so you get the best possible speed and lowest latency and just keep it healthy. And it was all, again, undifferentiated heavy lifting that we shouldn't be doing. And that's why we moved to Amazon Elasticsearch. Now, <clears throat> we moved because it really freed up time for us, reduced complexity so that we can focus our energies on other things. It has automated maintenance, so whether it be uh, disk or capacity, all of that can be managed. Scalability is actually really managed scalability, right? It's not uh, human handheld scalability. And there's a large support community around Elasticsearch. Now, I personally have been a fan of Elasticsearch for a long time. While at Microsoft, uh, I ran the team that also had Azure Search, which is itself built on Elasticsearch. And um, it's, a, uh, it's a very rich, feature-packed system. Now, if you are using Elasticsearch, it's definitely worth looking at it because of all of the capabilities that you can bring to your customers very, very quickly. And I'll touch upon one of their really interesting features, which we later leveraged uh, towards the end of this presentation. Great. So how did we migrate and cut over to this new system? Migration on a system like this is non-trivial, because if you want to preserve customer experience, you have to be very careful about it. So what we did was we created a shadow path, okay? uh, something that was operating in parallel. So data came in from these MLSs. We still had the ETL process. It loaded into the listing database. But now, along with the path of uh, indexer workers picking from the listing database and loading up Lucene shards, we also created a parallel path of Elasticsearch index workers, Elasticsearch cluster into which we were loading up and indexing, and the query the coming over the search API was forked and sent to both. And so you got return results from both. We made sure the results were coming equally fast or faster from the new cluster. We ensured that we compared the results and the results were identical. So we ran this in parallel for uh, quite a while. So just we could actually ensure that this parallel system really worked very well. And then we eliminated the Lucene cluster. So now in the process of doing it, we made a number of other improvements as well. Uh, we shifted to much more of a modern, event-driven microservices architecture. So this is a current state, and I'll walk through it in a little bit of detail. <clears throat> so data from MLSs are then still pulled through an ETL system, you know, Spark jobs and everything, process and cook the data, and custom to every MLS we pull from. But now we have multiple microservices, domain-specific ones. So for buildings, processing buildings listings, we had a buildings microservice. It has its own database behind it. It's not a single document database anymore. There's a buildings microservice. There's a listings service. 
there's a geospatial microservice. So all of these services are uh, now domain-specific, owned by individual teams, and those teams know exactly what to do and they can keep innovating on it. And uh, their outputs from those microservices are actually put on a Kafka topic in uh, managed streaming Kafka. So now we adopted Amazon's MSK, and we now started publishing the outputs from these microservices on dedicated topics on MSK. Now, indexer workers were no longer pulling a listing database, so we eliminated that bottleneck. Indexer workers were getting notified of events. Events are the publication of uh, uh, an output on a Kafka stream. And so now the indexer worker, when it gets notified of the event, takes action to process that particular topic, right? That particular document on the topic. And that's what then loads the Elasticsearch clusters. So now they are working essentially completely async and not bottlenecked by IOPS uh, on a listing DB. So now Elasticsearch clusters um, uh, hold all of the indexes and it does its magic. The search service uh, sits in the middle. Um, so it also now relies upon a cache, a search cache. So that's built on the Amazon Elastic Cache. Um, and so imagine a search query coming in from a user. So the search service first looks up in the Amazon Elastic Cache and sees if the document exists in the cache. If it exists in the cache, it's served with extremely low latency. If not, it issues the query to Elasticsearch and it serves the result up and puts that result in the cache for future retrieval, right? And so the whole process works better. So now look at the transformation that we just did. Uh, multiple transformations. Not only did we just move to Elasticsearch, we broke key things up into microservices. We used a streaming Kafka service uh, so that everything could be processed asynchronously. And we also introduced things like a cache. And now all of this move really happened in about six months and we were able to innovate pretty fast because we were using managed services here. We used MSK for Kafka, we used the Elastic Cache. And then, of course, we used Amazon Elasticsearch. And our journey is not done, by the way. We really are moving fully to event-driven microservice architectures, which have lots of benefits. <clears throat> OK, so these were some of the immediate wins. Lower maintenance burden and cost. All of these services now are, by and large, self-managed. Uh, very few people involved. Indexing became incredibly fast. It used to take eight hours in the past, down to one hour with 20 times our data volume. Um, we could now iterate incredibly fast for the customer. Instead of spending our time managing Lucene charts, now we were uh, working on putting out more features for customers. Uh, example was description search. As soon as we had Elasticsearch, we could enable free text search. That became easy. And then cluster creation became very easy, one-click cluster creation. So doing things like blue-green deployments, when we have a significant change, we just start up a new cluster and make sure that one works in parallel, it worked great, then we will shut down the old one. Right? The deployment process became significantly better. So these were all the immediate wins. So at the end of the day, it's all about a customer, right? So which meant listings and features available faster to a lot more customers. Now I want to talk about another innovation that was now possible because of uh, Elasticsearch. This is saved search notifications. Now, in real estate, because the search process for a consumer is typically pretty long, months, maybe sometimes even a year or more, but people save searches. 
they would put up a search for the type of condo they want and say, whenever a new listing comes up that matches my search query, notify me. Notify me on my app or send me an email. And that's actually a very important feature, both for consumers and for agents. Now, here's how we did it before Amazon ES and its features. So let's say the search, look at the left, that's a typical search. A condo on the Upper East Side in New York, asking price less than one and a half million, so on. So you, might, you would issue a search like this and then press a button, save the search, and uh, tell you to notify. Now the save search service would take it and keep it in a save search repository. We would have a process that then looped through all of the saved searches in the database and run it against the search cluster, take the results back, and see if it is new, take, extract just the new ones out of it, and then notify the consumer of that. That was a process. So very slow, order of and process, looping through all the saved searches, hundreds of thousands of saved searches that people have kept. You just loop through it, run the search, and then keep you know, processing it. Very slow, right? Sometimes it takes hours, um, maybe sometimes a, almost a day for people to get notifications of new listing. Now that's a problem, because in real estate, there's a little bit of this Twitter-like phenomenon, meaning, a listing is the hottest when it just came on the market. Everybody wants to know about it, especially in markets like San Francisco and others where there's tremendous amount of competition. You want to know as soon as the listing comes on the market. So what could we do now that we have Elasticsearch? Well, so the problems were new search result detection was problematic, notification latency, live notifications, all of these wouldn't work very well. So we went to a new architecture and Again, Elasticsearch was very empowering for that. So it's a bit of a complex diagram, so let me explain what happens. Now, <clears throat> let's start with the very bottom. So that's uh, somebody is uh, doing a search. The saved search service takes a search to be saved, puts it in its own database. And it puts that saved search on a managed streaming Kafka topic. So now Elasticsearch has a wonderful feature called Percolate. Percolate is the opposite of the standard search. In a standard search, what you do is you have documents that are indexed, and a search then fetches the right documents that match it. In Percolate, documents find the search queries. Okay, it's the opposite. So the saved searches itself are the ones that are indexed and documents can find the searches that match it. It's the inverse. So that's called Percolate. So there are saved search indices now that are created, and the Percolate processor can now, when a new listing comes in, the Percolate processor can pick up the searches that match that new listing that came up, and then send a notification out, okay? So now up from the top, when a new listing is pulled from the MLS, it's put on an MSK listing topic stream. So uh, an event is driven. So you execute Percolate. Now the listing then finds all the saved searches that match that listing. Then you uh, publish those out on an MSK saved search match topic stream. And that's then picked up by the saved search service and uh, the notification service is alerted and that notification service is what sends it out to the, to the phone or to the email. Okay, 
So listings find the searches instead of searches finding the listings and then processing it. And that's a really incredibly uh, effective uh, change. What happens is you have automated detection of the search matches. The notifications lag is reduced from an hour to one minute. It's almost instant. And then any lag that is left is in other parts of the system where you know, our email sending may not be as fast as it needs to be, or our notifications into the app may not be as fast as it is. And all of those are things that we can now keep tuning and decreasing. And now we can enable push notifications. Right? So this now gets really much closer to that almost Twitter of real estate kind of vision. Right? That's where it gets. Very effective. Now, there are still some challenges with Amazon Elasticsearch. <clears throat> Uh, and we are working very closely with the Elasticsearch team, and they're incredibly supportive. Uh, but it's always useful to know what the issues are as well. So today, choosing the instance type and cluster size of Elasticsearch is not easy. So you might over-provision, in which it will cost you a lot. Uh, if you don't provision the right mix, then it is going to not perform as well, obviously. You'll have to fiddle with it. So that's a bit of a challenge. Monitoring on Elasticsearch is still improving. So JVM memory and a number of other things that we need to know about uh, for the health of this cluster, uh, well, they were not easy to monitor for. And we worked with the uh, Elasticsearch team, and they've improved things significantly. But there's still continuing room for improvement. We have had uh, some amount of cluster start failure rate that they are improving. So uh, when we innovate on a new feature, we would automatically stand up a new cluster. We have found very often that when a cluster starts up, uh, it looks like in a console it started up, but you don't get the endpoint, and so there's a bunch of flakiness around it. Again, all of these are things that the team is improving upon, um, but these are some of the few remaining challenges. But overall, we are incredibly thrilled with this move to Amazon Elasticsearch and how we are uh, doing it. Now, it's so easy that, remember, many developers can very quickly start a clusters without knowing how expensive it can get. So we had a few of those misses. It's our fault, by the way, for not being fully on top of it. But you have to be careful about the resources you stand up. Uh, some of these get expensive. You have to shut it down if you're not using it. So there's a little bit of that cost management that you have to be sensitive to as well. Uh, but otherwise, overall, if you are on top of it, this is a great system to work with. So now let me talk a little bit about the future. I mean, this is really day one for real estate search. Almost everyone will agree that uh, real estate search today is still quite clunky. I mean, the experiences any company is able to generate um, still leaves a lot to be decided. It's nowhere that simple. Uh, so we were innovating in a big way with AI. And this backbone of uh, Elasticsearch microservices-based architecture that we have built is foundational. You know, so we are now starting to use AI for uh, search in many, many places. Like the first one is uh, search suggestions. So all of you know the search box in which you actually start typing the address. You know, if it's an Uber or even Google Maps, as soon as you start typing, you will get a list of search suggestions. Now, our search suggestions are not actually even as simple as what you might find on a Google Map. We have people searching for uh, addresses, but buildings for agents, you know, for schools, for various other properties. So as soon as you start typing, say, first three characters, how do you find the right choice to surface in the search suggestions as close to the top as possible so that the uh, consumer is able to very quickly issue the search and get an accurate result every time. That's an AI problem. 
And so we've got some really great AI algorithms being applied to that. And our goal is to rank those search suggestions as close to the top as possible. It, it turns out to be actually a very important uh, enabler for search effectiveness. Um, the second one is search result ranking itself. So now if you search, and let's say you get a whole bunch of uh, homes in the neighborhood, well, you let a page through lots of pages before you get to the ones that you like. Now, ideally, the things that you care about should be on the very first page and as close to the top as possible. How do you make that happen? Again, that's an AI search ranking problem. And we've got AI algorithms working uh, against it in, in uh, both uh, filtering by quality, you know, ordering it by your preferences, ordering by what's hot in the market, many things that will make the clicks that you make uh, much more close to the top of the search results than otherwise. That, makes, that means it's relevant. And then there's personalized search. Now, uh, we can, uh, since uh, people search over multiple weeks and months and repeatedly engage with the site, you can always uh, optimize for their behavior and serve up far more personalized results. Okay? So still day one, tremendous opportunity for us to innovate. And remember, even uh, it's not just even a web-based uh, innovation. And uh, uh, if you are searching on a mobile phone, it would be a very different uh, thing that you optimize for using AI versus if you're searching on a website. And so lots of room for innovation there. Well, um, I'll stop there, and I'll uh, 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 point you to this uh, particular session, Learn Big Data with AWS Training and Certification. Um, there are resources created by experts at AWS to help you build and validate data analytics skills. So this covers Elasticsearch and everything. Um, and um, in, in the previous time I ran this, I was able to take questions, and it was actually very helpful. And I'm seeing that since there are a lot, not a lot of people we can still probably take a few questions after this. Just ask the question, I will repeat uh, so that everyone can hear. Uh, and then we can take a few more questions. And then, thank you, by the way. <clears throat> if you have a question, raise your hand. <clears throat> well, okay, go ahead. So, quick question. I love your idea on Percolate, yep. reversing the search and letting Yeah. So the the question was, uh, many MLSs are migrating to resale, and uh, you've got to pull from that, uh, and that's how you're getting it. So if you look at our architecture here. Um, we are not streaming the data from the uh, uh, MLSs at this point, actually. There's something that is in there. Uh, we are still doing the pool-based ETL. We are now, at this point, uh, uh, we have a bunch of microservices that are processing them. And those microservices are the one that's actually putting it out. Uh, so let me show you that architecture here uh, before saved search. Yeah, so it's those microservices that are putting it out on a Kafka topic stream, and then the percolate is happening. So I wish it were fully uh, streaming. It's not fully streaming yet. Those are innovations that we are going to just come towards. Yeah. Uh, 
So uh, regarding cost estimation for Elasticsearch, there are guidelines. Um, I think it is not simple to provide guidelines. You really have to play with it and understand what this. That is the area that really uh, needs improvement. So I think you would, uh, I recommend a solutions architect, engage with an AWS solutions architect to go with it. Yeah, Joseph, I'll also add to, uh, you know, we spent a lot of work with the service team and with the solutions architects to help customers, such as yourself, figure out how to size. And there is a blog post out there. It's called T-Shirt Size Your Domain. Uh, I would suggest you start with that. Uh, effectively, when you think about sizing, uh, the one thing that you can't get by is going to be storage. And uh, usually what I start with is a storage estimate. So when you look at you know, the Amazon Elasticsearch service or Elasticsearch in general, the architecture is the ability to spread the load across uh, your multiple data nodes using shards. And so the first thing you think about is storage. And when we have storage, um, with the Amazon Elasticsearch service, you only get specific sizes to work with. If you're managing yourself, you can hang multiple 16 terabyte EBS volumes off, uh, but then that creates uh, some inefficient ratios with storage to CPU and JVM and things like that. Um, so what you do is you look um, at the total corpus of your data for um, you know, what your primary shard is going to be. So if you have 300 gig, um, that could be your baseline data sitting at rest once it's been transformed, right? The second thing you look at is how many copies of my data am I going to have? Uh, so we call these, you know, replicas. And so each time you put a replica on a shard, it duplicates the size of that data. So if I wanted one, uh, you know, if I had, you know, if it comes down to I have 300 gig and I had replicas, I now have 600 gig. So you know you need at least 600 gig of storage. And then when you know, Elasticsearch does its thing, um, you know, it expands the size of, of certain things. So mappings and what you choose to search or choose not to search also affects that size. But once you've determined that size, we also like to plan about 15% overage um, so that you have some expansion and you don't hit what are called watermarks on the service. Watermarks can be detrimental to the function of your business and you really want to pay attention to those. Um, and then the final thing I'd like to just a, a real quick rule of thumb. Once you've figured out your shards, so let's say you have 300 gig, and the recommendation by Elasticsearch is 50 gig shards max. Now, you have to test these, too. This is just a, a general rule of thumb to start with for sizing. That means that you'll have six total shards. You know, 300 divided by 50, that gives me six. Plus, if I add one replica to that, that gives me 12 total shards that have to be split across my data nodes. Now, I look at the compute, and I look at shard to CPU ratios. A shard is an instance of Lucene, and it wants to have CPU cycles on your instance. And so if you have more shards than you have CPU, then you have ineffective performance. We call this oversharding. And um, it works in some cases when you plan for sizing, but if you maintain a fixed size and you have all these shards, you can find that your performance inefficient. So in the end, you know, Joseph spent much time with his team, and his team did a lot of work on testing. You set that size, that's your baseline. Iterate. Try instance families. If you're a search use case, sometimes you might want to have more memory because Elasticsearch has what's called file system cache. And those segments and documents will be brought into memory and served a little bit quicker with the service. But there's a multitude of things. In the end, as Joseph mentioned, feel free to reach out to your account representative or your, you know, your technical account managers or your solutions architect for your, uh, for your account, and uh, they can bring one of us specialists into the mix. 
Uh, one more thing I'll add to this, I, again, based on our own experience. <clears throat> so we went for reserved instance on Elasticsearch. That really helped. But then one thing we forgot was we had provisioned IOPS that was not part of the reserved instances. And we had over-provisioned IOPS. So we were just like way too much. So it turned out reserved instances cut our cost significantly. But now almost as much of the cost was just IOPS we were paying for. So we cut that down dramatically. And now we are at a much, much healthier state. Right? So you just have to manage the balance a little bit. So let me take your question. Yeah. Detail of how to use Elastic Cash. Uh, Chow, you want to come up and say something? Uh, here. I'll, I'll just extend my. No, this is okay. Um, so, of how we use Elastic Cash. Right. So, um, as Joseph mentioned, basically we use Elastic Cash as a frontier to make sure our customers get back results as fast as possible, right? Um, of course, that we need have a way to make sure the results in the cache is as fresh as possible. So basically, for every request coming in, if there is a cache hit on the background, we'll still refresh it with the uh, Elasticsearch results with a updated TTL. So that's, that's a, I guess, a kind of a secret sauce. We make sure the cache is being always being fresh to the customers. Go ahead. On a cache miss, how fast is it? Um, so it depends on type of search, right? Um, so as you can see from the representation, we support you know list search, map search, and some heavy aggregation type of search. Generally, it's pretty fast. It's like P95 is within 100 milliseconds for most of you know the search search cases, even directly hit Elasticsearch. Um, but you know, if a user is issuing a large query, it could take time. Uh, so on your side, on the client side, you should make sure you have certain level of SLAs to guarantee you know, it does not exhaust the sources. Let me take a question in the back over there. Yeah, question is how do you make sure there is a cache yet given everybody's queries are uh, you know, different. So, um, so basically, we shard uh, we shard the user queries as a key in the. So we use Redis Elastic Cache. Uh, we it's pretty simple. We basically shard the user queries as a key. So if, for example, your query is a little bit different from the other query, then you're gonna have a different mapping entries in the Redis cache. Did, did we make any change to how we, in the back end, how we store and process listings? So this, yeah, so there's a lot of changes. I mean, so as we've created those microservices, you know, we extracted the specific transformations and innovated on it quite a bit. And so you want to add any more to what is behind each microservice, like buildings, listings, geospatial? Yeah, like um, it's, it's not easy, you know, normalization behind different services because you know, um, for example, we have our customer address normalization for different addresses. 
um, you know, for transactions, buildings, etc. So um, I think, yeah, as, as Joseph mentioned, there's quite a lot of complexities behind this um, into database. Go ahead. Louder, please. The, so you're sort of asking about total volumes, right? Okay, can you repeat the question? Yeah, so the question was how many documents are we indexing in our search engine? Um, so basically, right now we are around uh, over 120 million documents being indexed, and um, you know, um, we serve around the daily 100 million search queries to our search stack. Yeah. Uh, good. Go, uh, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, since production, have you encountered downtimes with Elasticsearch and how quickly were you able to recover? Um, so, I would say generally, uh, we have very good, you know, uh, uptime, but there, there indeed sometimes, you know, the clusters are going to red. Um, for us, we always keep a, you know, backup clusters on production so we can quickly roll back. So it's, diff it's, it's basically, you know, redirect your traffic to your another cluster to make sure customers are, you know, not seeing the impact. And I'd also add too, you know, the service team really, um, you know, treats it as, you know, one of its primary goals to ensure that the service is, you know, uh, up as, you know, available as possible. Um, recently, we really did introduce a, a service SLA, which many customers were asking for. And the service SLA falls upon those principles I talked about earlier which was being able to distribute your workload across multiple availability zones in the event you have a failure, right? Um, and then so go across multiple availability zones, you know, anywhere from two to three, uh, that ensures you just, your data nodes and your master nodes are distributed across those uh, availability zones. And then that will allow you to fall into the service SLA. And to, you know, our team wants to make sure that you know, customers are having great experience with the service and we try to achieve that SLA and exceed it as often as possible. Uh, and the final thing I would mention too, um, you know, Joseph has mentioned that you need to, you know, test your workload. You have to anticipate things that may, you know, be detrimental to the operation of your cluster. Um, it is a shared service and there is, you know, from a management perspective, we're taking care of the infrastructure and we're taking care of the, the security and the health of the domain. Um, but you can easily, if you don't plan your workloads properly, the appropriate shards, uh, you have unanticipated workloads that you haven't planned for, you can find times where you will overwhelm the cluster and it may not be available for use. Yeah, Thank as you. a best practice, you want to have two availability zones, right? All right, any other questions? Go ahead. What about images, where do we store them? Uh, um, so we have, we have a whole pipeline uh, in terms of uh, processing images, store image metadata. Um, in the search engine, we also store, you know, images. For, right now, we are doing some basic, you know, searches related images, but um, we have, you know, um, for example, image searches um, coming, 
you know, in, in progress, I guess, and uh, with the power of AI to understanding more details from the, you know, user inputted image information, it's going to help us to improve the user experiences in the future. The images themselves are on S3, right? We have the S3 URL and, and the document and DynamoDB, right? And uh, we, of course, use a CDN as well. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you very much. You've been a great audience. Thank <laughs> you.